Now, Father in heaven, we are so grateful for this opportunity now to open up the Word of God in English, to enjoy the fruit that has come from the sacrifices of those who over many years and decades struggled to produce this Bible in the English language. Many who lost their lives along the way. We don't take for granted the fact that we have this precious eternal word in a language that we can understand. Father, we're aware that this is a cursed world. It is not our duty as believers to try to reverse the curse. We cannot do that through human government, through legislation, through insurrection, rebellion, or any other means. The only way to change the world is to change the hearts of the people in the world, and we do that through the gospel. And so we pray that today would be a reminder to us of the power of the gospel in the face of a dark and sinful world. We acknowledge, Father, that you are sovereign and that you are in control. There is not one rogue leader anywhere on this planet. You have ordained before the foundation of the world every moment of every day of every life. And so we rest in that, that you are the ultimate and unshakable incumbent ruler of the universe. And yet, for your own purposes and ultimately for your own glory, we acknowledge that you have ordained that evil men and evil women have their turn in positions of leadership. And as we look around our world and around our nation and around our state, we see that presented to us. We see a world increasingly hostile towards the truth of the gospel, increasingly hostile to biblical holiness, increasingly hostile to the free expression of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ through the preaching of the word. It is evident that the devil, who is the prince of the power of this age, is at work through the governing institutions, through government schools, through government agencies. And Father, we acknowledge the fact that we must submit to and work with and be under such authority so long as it does not command us to do something that violates your word or commands us not to do something that your word directs us to do. Father, I pray that you would um, give us great wisdom as we seek to discern precisely who is worthy of receiving from us the honor and the respect and the obedience that you've called us to show and when we must, in order to obey you, disobey those authorities. As we will see today in your word, it is a continual battle for believers to live in a world that hates them. We are repeatedly persecuted, continually abused, often marginalized, and ultimately extinguished if the powers that be have their way. 
Uh, this has borne out over and over again throughout all of world history, and we do not expect to be treated any differently here. We don't know your timing and we don't know your purposes, but we do know the patterns of history and we will learn from them. In the meantime, I pray that we would be bold, that we would be courageous, that we would be resolved to speak truth in the places where we have a voice and that your truth would be heard by your people whom you have chosen before the foundation of the world, the elect ones to whom you will ensure that your gracious truth is heard and believed. As our Lord said in the passage read to us earlier, it was to those who could hear. Parables designed to blind eyes that didn't want to see and stop ears that didn't want to hear, but were at the same time visible to those who had been given eyes to see and understood by those who had been given ears to hear. And may today be a day where those who have such eyes and ears, may they be filled with this truth to their eternal joy and your eternal glory. Work in our hearts today. Prepare us even now to receive what may be difficult truth, to abandon our natural desires and inclinations, our natural tendency to follow our father, Adam, and instead, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to follow our brother, Christ. Look forward to the day when the resurrection occurs and all is made new and all that is sad is made untrue, as we said last week. And where everything that has ever happened to us in this world is suddenly understood through the lens of your eternal plan and becomes something that we celebrate. Oh, give us a glimpse of that this morning, and if not, at least the hearts to believe it. For it is in your name we pray. Amen. There's really nothing more natural than revenge. In our fallen state, as people, we are wired to repay evil with evil. There is nothing more satisfying to our flesh than giving our enemy what we think they deserve. There is nothing more satisfying to our sense of justice than to exercise our sense of justice. We take a certain joy in the fall of the wicked, and we take a particular and intense joy in the fall of our enemies. Deep inside within us, there is a built-in drive for fairness, and it is accentuated to a degree like none other when we believe our rights have been violated, when we believe our reputation has been impugned, when we believe that somebody has hurt us and therefore they deserve to be hurt back in return. And nothing will satisfy until that judgment falls. And until we can relieve ourselves of that burden, it will be the corrosive acid that burns 
holes in your soul if that justice is not meted out in this life. In fact, there are people that are so bent on their form of justice that they will dig up the bones of their enemies and burn them. So how do we as Christians respond to that natural drive that is still within us? And we'll be there until we're perfected one day in glory, until the resurrection. How do we take that very natural sense of justice, which can be a God-given thing, but perverted by the fall and turned into a desire for vengeance and understand it biblically, especially in a world that is so bent on putting revenge on display. Were it not for revenge, I'm quite convinced that about two-thirds of the films that are out there could not be made. A great deal of the stories that are told could not be told. Many of the life purposes for individuals out there could not be fulfilled because their entire purpose exists in revenge. They are all Indigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, remember? His whole mission in life was to avenge the death of his father. And he finally has the opportunity to say what he has always wanted to say. My name is Indigo Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare to die. There's part of us inside that goes, yeah. How do we line up the yeah with the word? Open your Bibles to Romans 12. It's the third week now in this section from 9 through 21 in Romans 12. And um, now we're getting really practical. Start off with the big picture. The reminder of what we are to be in terms of our humility, in terms of our honor, our hope, and our hospitality. That was the first section. And then we dug down a little bit further into some of the more practical matters, and I gave you five of those points last week. And then this week, I'm going to give you five more ways of kind of understanding the principles in each of these five verses that we'll look at today and really begin to cover the practical matters, the difficult truths, the parts of the surgery that are going to hurt more because it's going to extract from us some of the most natural beliefs and reactions that we have. I'm going to read the entire section in Romans 12, beginning in verse 9 down through 21. Please follow along as I do. This is the word of the Lord. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Now do one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. 
Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sights. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Five instructions, five verses. The first of those comes out of the heading of the word dignity. If you're going to function in this world in a way that honors Christ, even though there is a virtually perpetual parade of people that are seeking to offend and persecute you, it must be done primarily with the eye towards what it means to live a dignified life. The dignity here is explained to us in verse 17 when it says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. The all there is not just the whole church. The all there is all. All is all people. All who you come into contact with. And if you're going to live honorably in the sight of all people, then you are going to have to take up a course of life that is going to be challenging, especially when what you would rather do is avenge yourself. Obviously, repaying evil for evil is the opposite of living honorably in the sight of all. That's how the verse is structured. So Paul is making a contrast. He says, the way you do not live honorably in the eyes of all people is to go about repaying evil for evil. The way you do not honor the Lord by living a life that is honorable to others is by being known as somebody who is very capable of exacting revenge, of getting even, of settling the score, of never being cheated twice, of making it clear that you don't cross me about establishing yourself in that position of authority where nobody would ever challenge you because they saw what happened to the last person who tried that. Solidifying your place because you are untouchable. And if you do get touched, you respond with something many times worse than what was done to you. I was warned one time before going into a meeting with a rather adversarial elder, not from this church, that I ought to be careful because he's known to bring guns to a knife fight. I didn't realize that I was going to be having to knife him or shoot him, but I was glad to know. What he was trying to tell me is that this guy doesn't respond evenly. You come in with something and he's going to do everything he can to destroy you. Is that honorable living in the eyes of God? It's not honorable in the eyes of God. It's not honorable in the eyes of his people. And it's not honorable in the eyes of the world. And so if you look at this first issue of dignity, it means to live your life in dignity, even if it means 
embracing the indignity of the persecution that is brought upon you. It doesn't mean that you roll over and you don't ever defend yourself. It doesn't mean that when you turn the other cheek that you simply set yourself up for a beating on the other side. In fact, I believe that that phrase that was read to you earlier, turn the other cheek, really just means you walk away. It doesn't mean you just stand there and get turned into a punching bag. But here's the thing. If you're going to be a dignified servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if we are going to, to live out our days in a world that is increasingly hostile, it has to be done with the mindset that we're going to embrace what comes to us as from the hand of our loving Father for a reason, and that he will ultimately be the judge who makes things right. That elevates his dignity, which in turn provides us with ours. Your dignity is not restored by revenge. Your dignity is established by patience. And this is what Paul is saying here in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought, pay attention, make a plan before it even happens to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Dignity. The second word is respect. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You need to have the respect of the people around you. I do like the fact that Paul says that if possible. Now that that gives me an out. Because sometimes it's not. There are some people who believe that God has placed them on this earth for the sole purpose of making your life miserable. There's nothing you can do. And what I have discovered over my years is that you're not the only one. That person tends to have a pattern in their life. They, they seem to know how to accumulate enemies. They seem to know how to just be offensive to many people. They, they, they grow increasingly isolated because fewer and fewer people wish to share the same space as them. So when Paul says, if it's possible, he is obviously identifying the fact there are some for whom there will never be peace. There are some for whom the only peace they enjoy is the war that they make. And you might know some of these people. Think about it right now. It doesn't take long. You can pull them up in your mind. In your mental database, you can start flagging these people. No matter what I do, they cannot live in peace with me. And you might say, well, wait a minute, maybe it's my fault, but then you'll come to realize, no, the common denominator in all of their failed relationships is them. They repel people, they drive them away. The older they get, the fewer people that are around them because they have done nothing in the earlier years to accumulate the friends that they would were they a peacemaker and a loving, gentle person. And Paul says, if it is possible, you live at peace with everybody. Let's turn that inside. We understand that we can't always do that with others, but, but may I submit to you this morning that you can begin the process of doing that with yourself now, being the kind of person who lives at peace with others. Don't always assume that when he says live at peace with others, he means you try to live at peace with, with, with all of those nasty people out there. There would be more peace if you yourself were a peacemaker as well. Now, these are getting very practical. I understand that. You might say, well, this is really hard for me to do because I don't really know whether or not I am that kind of person. Well, let me invite you to find somebody who is close to you who will tell you the truth and you ask them. Are you a prickly person who drives people away or are you a warm person that invites them in? 
Can you be trusted? These build on one another because one of the quickest ways for you to drive others away is to always return evil for evil, to always return sin for sin, to be the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of Christian. To say, if you're going to do something to me, I'm going to do it back to you or I'm going to resent you for it. Where there is dignity, there is respect. And where there is respect, there is peace. And Paul says that if you can resist the urge to fight back, even though it's very much in your nature, then you'll be able to live honorably. You will be able to choose, at least from your end, to live in peace with everybody else. This applies here to the respect you show to others, the respect you show to yourself, and the response you can expect from your community. Be the kind of person, he says, who is an asset to all. Now, at this present time, I want to make sure that we don't confuse this as being, again, a checklist of external moralistic codes that we can live up to in hope of winning the jewels for our crown in heaven. This isn't just you going out there and saying, well, here's the list of good deeds I now need to try to cultivate within my life. The only way this is going to be done and done well and done right and done consistently in a situation like our world where it's incredibly hard to do it is if it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Only that way. I may have given you this illustration before, but it sticks out in my mind so vividly. We were doing a conference one time at my previous church, and I had ordered greenery because the campus was primarily covered in concrete and so we would get these trees and we would cover the campus with them because it looked nice and I asked the people who were responsible for delivering them to send me a number of kumquat trees because I thought that would be cool. Why not? And they arrived and, and sure enough I had these kumquat trees that we could place around the campus and um, upon closer inspection I realized that the kumquats that were hanging on there were not actually real kumquats. They were tied on. They, 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 were, they were plastic, and they tasted terrible. And I just thought, that is a picture of the Christian life for so many people. They, they want to bear this kind of fruit. They want to be looking fruitful. They, they want to look like they're an obedient example, and yet it's not being generated from the internal life and energy of the tree. It's just being tied on with some legalistic, external, moralistic pattern. Let's be careful not to adopt that way of living. You say, well, how do I get it to be the other way? You pray, you ask the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome the power of the flesh and to therefore bear fruit for His glory. Read Ephesians 5, read Galatians 5, understand the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to do everything for you. It is never a matter of our good works where we just, with more grit, learn how to be the better Christian. It is always by resting in the power of the Spirit to do that in us and through us, and I might add, quite often, in spite of us. So the first is the dignity, the second is the respect. The third we see in verse 19, and that is trust. The author continues, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul reaches back into Proverbs 25, and he borrows a proverb. The Proverbs were the wisdom literature of the ancient world, and so 
those recipients would have known these proverbs and, and they're constantly being reminded of these short statements that are distilled truth. It's the, it's the hard liquor of truth distilled down into something that can be taken in a shot. And he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is the um, most concise way of making the statement. And so he, he reaches back into Proverbs and he grabs that and he serves up around for all the people in Rome who are tempted to take their own vengeance. And this is a pattern throughout all of redemptive history from the very beginning God said, I am in charge of vengeance. Vengeance belongs to me. When he says vengeance is mine, he does not say, I will be there to provide the vengeance that you think is necessary. He says, note it, I own vengeance. I own it. It's mine. You can't touch it. You're not allowed to pull the trigger. You're not allowed to drop the bomb. You're not allowed to do the deed. It's not your job. Back off. I own it. Vengeance is mine. How dare you break into the armory and steal my weapons and use them as you see fit? We can say today in a parallel, though nowhere near as intense example, that vengeance belongs to the state. The sword belongs to the state. We're going to cover that actually in a few weeks. They exercise the sword. Now they do that through individuals, but those individuals don't have the right to decide when that sword is going to be used. The pilot doesn't have the individual right to decide upon whom he is going to drop the bomb. The soldier doesn't decide without any instruction who he is going to shoot and kill. In the same way, the Christian does not have the right to go in and to take over the place of God and decide how the vengeance is going to be meted out. In fact, quite the opposite. You sit still and you trust him. Because there will be times when you are slandered, lied about, abused, taken advantage of, and there's going to be nothing for you to do except to sit there and take it and remind yourself that God is the judge who'll make it right in the end. And believe me, it is always better to let God be the judge than for you to be the judge. If I might, allow me to illustrate this with a personal and somewhat embarrassing example. There are two types of people in this world. There are those who enter into a conflict whether they realize it or not. And they don't know what to say at the time, and so when they're driving home, it suddenly dawns on them what they could have said to really get back at that person. Then there are those who, in the middle of the conflict, do think about what they should say to that person, and then they say it, and they drive home wishing they hadn't. I happen to be in the second category. So those of you in the first category who wish you were in the second category, trust me, you don't want to be in the second category. Better to drive home having not said it than to regret having said it. When you take vengeance into your own hands, it's always messy. You never do it right. There's a saying that I like, if you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. In the end, nothing will go unpunished. Nothing will go unjudged. God is holy, and he knows everything, and he will not allow for anything to go undealt with. And might I add, at this point, the gospel You won't understand biblical vengeance until you understand a biblical gospel. 
People who can hold their peace when they're attacked are people who understand the gospel because they understand that Jesus Christ was sent so that he could live the life that you and I could never live, die a death he didn't deserve, in order that his righteousness might be given to those who put their faith and trust in him. And all of their sin, all of their gossip, all of their slander, all of their wickedness, and all of your sin and your gossip and your slander and your wickedness were poured out upon him. He became sin for us and was judged. He bore it all. And so the way we can think about this is that when we are tempted to have vengeance, we are tempted, whether we realize it or not, to usurp his role and to declare that you are so preeminent and I am so preeminent that justice is more important to us than Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And that the two alternatives left are not enough. Because there's only two. That sin is dealt with in one of two places. Either Christ, the holy substitute, was crushed for it, or the offender suffers in hell forever for it. And when we demand vengeance, we say to God, neither of those alternatives is enough. It's not enough that your son was crushed. It's not enough that they suffer in hell forever because I'm so important. Trust that vengeance belongs to God. He's going to do it. He's going to do it better than you can do it. And so, you don't avenge yourselves, but you leave it to the wrath of God. We're kind of going into this verse a little bit backward, but I need to because now that we've established all that, we're not saying wrath doesn't exist. We're not saying that people just get off. Nobody just gets away. But the wrath that is to be poured out is a wrath that comes from God. It's his wrath. It's his vengeance, his wrath. He owns it. He administers it. He is the only one qualified to dose it out fairly. We cannot be trusted with administering something of that strength. Dignity, respect, trust. Fourth word is kindness. Look what he says in verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, I know some of you are thinking, yeah, finally, the burning coals verse. I don't know about this feeding and drinking thing, but man, get to the burning coals part, man. That's my kind of Bible verse. Show me a flannel graph for that. Burning coals on your head. Listen, there's a context to this. You've got to understand it. Paul is saying what he says, but he's saying it within a context. So let's understand it, okay? We've got to understand what is going on in this statement, what is going on in this idea, because if we're not to take vengeance on our own, which is clearly the context of the passage, and we're not to simply pour out our form of justice, 
then all of this must fit together to say the same thing because Paul is not going to contradict himself and the Holy Spirit would not inspire something that wasn't clear. So, go back to this idea of your enemy. This is the person who's persecuting you. This is the person who's lied about you. This is the person who has slandered you. Uh, This is the person who uh, has stolen from you, has abused you in some way. There's your enemy, okay? And that enemy now is hungry and thirsty. That tells me that in the context, that enemy has been reduced. That enemy is no longer in a position of power. That enemy can't control you and abuse you because they're starving and they're dying of thirst. The the enemy here in this context is a weakened enemy. An enemy that is actually in a position to need something from you. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever known somebody who has been your enemy to suddenly have a pretty significant reversal of fortune and now be in need? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've watched this happen over the years when somebody commits a sin or they do something to persecute another believer and that person who is abused just holds their peace and leaves it up to God and how God in his chastening of that person causes such trial and affliction to come into their life that are almost unrecognizable by the time he's finally done with them. And this is the picture. And that enemy uh, weakened, perhaps under the chastening of God or perhaps under his vengeance as an unbeliever, is now coming to you and they are starving and they are dying of thirst. And Paul says, far be it from you to exact your punishment at this time in their weakness, but instead, give them some food. Give them something to drink. Show mercy. The one who can't show mercy to another person is the one who doesn't understand the mercy that God showed them. And so you show mercy. That brings us to the coals. In so doing, you heap coals on their head. There's really two main interpretations of what this means. The first one is that it's punitive, that by giving them food and drink, you fill them with so much shame and so much self-loathing that they go away from that experience utterly and completely punished and broken. Now, it is possible that one could look at it that way. I can think of examples where somebody has shown great kindness to an enemy and it has, has um, caused them to, to be so humiliated that the person who had been offended wins. But again, the context doesn't seem to teach that. The the context doesn't seem to say, well, do all these nice things to the person so that you set their head on fire. It it just seems incongruent. The second interpretation, which I, I think is more biblical, is that what it does is it creates within them this enormous sense of shame, but not shame only about what they have done, but an, an awareness of the fact that they need to repent. That, that by heaping coals on their head, you, you essentially stop their attack against you. And, and by doing so, uh, upon their, their head, as it were, are these, these coals, like the coal that touched Isaiah's lips and purified his mouth. Uh, the coals of the fire under the sacrifices, the, the coals that burn up and incinerate all that is wrong and evil in the mind, you, you essentially heap that up and, and they now can see clearly what they were doing. And it actually brings them to this point of, of brokenness. Yes, but not shame and humiliation, but brokenness and repentance. Don't you want the person to repent? 
If you're a genuine believer, you don't dance upon their grave. You don't take delight in the destruction of the wicked. God says he doesn't even do that. You don't don't celebrate the destruction of your enemy. You, You weep over it. Better to have the repentance. Better to have the restoration. Better to say we're both in the same place before God equally as sinners. A little illustration of this wonderful pastor in England, a little place called Barnstaple, and uh, his name is R.C. Chapman. And uh, he was known for his hospitality, loved to host people when they came into town, missionaries and others who were traveling. And one day his rich relative came and said, you know, you're, you're living in sort of self-imposed poverty here. Let me go and at least get you some groceries. And um, he said, fine, you can do that. I'll, I'll let you do that for me. But, but I need you to go to this particular grocer. And so the relative went and procured a massive order from this grocer. Now, what this um, relative didn't know was that that grocer earlier in the day had been in town when R.C. Chapman was out there open-air preaching and had hurled insults at Chapman, had cursed at him, had used all sorts of profanity, and had gotten right up and spit on Chapman. And that relative came and made this big order that afternoon. And when it was all being bundled up and he asked where it's to be delivered, she gave the address of R.C. Chapman. And when that grocer arrived at the door, he broke down in tears and gave his life to Christ. There is a sense in which the graciousness shown can bring a certain repentance and a certain awareness. And if that's the way that these coals are to be understood, then we need to understand that our magnanimous, gracious, merciful disposition, even towards our enemies, might have an eternal significance in the proclamation of the gospel. There's one more. We talked about dignity. We talked about respect, trust, kindness. Last one is influence. We see that in verse 21. You don't overcome evil by attacking it directly. Evil is to be overcome. Evil is real. Evil is everywhere. Evil is the air we breathe in this fallen world. But he says you don't allow yourself to be overcome by evil, but you overcome it with good. The good that is shown here is not the the good that mounts an opposing army. It's not a good that says we're going to suit up and we're going to fight against evil in a physical way. We're going to go toe-to-toe. We're going to combat these people in flesh and blood because the Apostle Paul reminds us that, that this isn't a battle against flesh and blood. Believe it or not, your battle is actually not against politicians. Your battle is actually not against governments. Your battle is actually not against even other countries. Your battle is always a battle that is spiritual. It is a battle that is going on in a world that cannot be seen. And so he says, if you're going to overcome this, you overcome it not with the tools of human warfare, but the tools of spiritual warfare. And by the way, the overcoming of the evil is not an assault at the scale that the evil is assaulting you. It is really a subversive attack. It's a resistance. It's guerrilla warfare. 
You're not concerned with trying to change the entire culture. You're concerned with trying to change the hearts of the individuals. You don't want to try to save the ship. The ship is sinking. But what you want to go is door to door and rescue the people who will hear the call and join you. And so when he says that you overcome evil with good, don't worry about trying to mount up some opposing army against it. Believe me, the moral majority is neither. Instead, what you need to do is work on an individual level through the network of relationships you've built, through being that that peacemaker, through living a dignified life even in your community, through showing kindness to people, through trusting the Lord in all things and all relationships so that at the very end you have a one-on-one interaction with another eternal soul and you have some passport into their life where you can speak truth. That's how you overcome evil. That's how good is surgically inserted and does its work. There's no general, vague, basic, universal good you're trying to do. This whole context, beloved, is on an individual level. Your good is administered person to person, situation by situation, conversation by conversation, pickup game of basketball at LA Fitness by pickup game of basketball at LA Fitness. Parking lot conversation by parking lot conversation. It's the way that the church really influences the world. Not as a monolithic institution, but as an association of the redeemed. If we fight back at anything, let's aim to fight back at the urge for revenge. And instead, leave it with the Lord. I'd like to give you two reasons for that now. Two reasons why you should trust in the vengeance of the Lord. Reason number one. God's vengeance is particular. His vengeance is particular. His vengeance, you could say, is precise. This came to my mind as I was doing my reading this week in the book of Exodus. And I was reading about the 10th plague that came upon the Egyptians in Exodus. And this particular verse stood out in my mind. It's Exodus chapter 11, verse 7. And I'm just going to give you a little context, and I'll read that verse. Exodus chapter 11, beginning in verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But, verse 7, not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Our God does not dump random wrath. He does not carpet bomb He drops precise missiles of divine, holy wrath on the recipients that are deserving of it. 
and he distinguishes and discriminates between those who are at that point the recipients of his wrath and those who are not. So the first reason why we need to trust in the vengeance of God and the wrath of God is that it is utterly particular and precise. Number two, it is absolutely perfect. His wrath is perfect. In our small group that meets on Tuesday night with the parents of the youth who are meeting themselves, we are going through a series on the attributes of God. And you know those attributes, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his holiness, his mercy, his grace. But if you consider that one of his attributes is his wrath, and that everything God is, he is infinitely. Everything God is, he is infinitely. He is infinitely merciful and infinitely wrathful at the same time. And so when you consider the infinity of his wrath, you also have to consider the fact that his wrath is utterly and completely perfect. There is no collateral damage with the wrath of God. It is poured out precisely and perfectly and judiciously upon those whom he sees fit to pour it out upon. And if we understand that and accept that and embrace it, it absolutely alleviates the pressure of trying to do that on our own because it'll, be, it'll never be done properly. Let me give you an example because you all may have felt this way. Even in your parenting, you know that when you discipline your children, you never discipline them perfectly. You, you never administer the perfect amount of discipline. You're, you're always maybe being a little too easy on them or a little too hard on them because you're an imperfect person. You're a sinner too. You realize that when you go to discipline them, you're taking into your hands the, the role given to you by God to be an administer of his justice, but you know that you're doing it imperfectly. Sometimes you do it out of anger. Have you ever disciplined your child out of anger? The parents aren't nodding, but the kids are. How about discipline them out of guilt? I wasn't going to discipline you, but you did it right at church in front of everybody, so now I've got to or else they're going to think I don't parent well. What about disciplining the wrong child? The one who didn't even do it. You're just in that mode, like, I'm done. I'm just spanking everybody. Kids like, it wasn't me. I don't care. You've done something I didn't catch you for. Wham. You know, God, God's, God's wrath is never like that. God doesn't spank the whole church. <laughs> Goes after the ones that need it. Trust is wrath. It's perfect. It's precise. And by the way, it never goes unperformed. He will do it. He says he will. If you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. He will. No, no one can um, get away on a technicality. He will not allow himself to be disbarred from the throne, from the bench of the universe in order to entertain somebody's plea bargain. It will always be poured out perfectly. May I leave you with three points of application. Number one, resist the urge for revenge. We sort of framed up this little series as godly ambition or maybe a way to make some plans for the new year. What if one of your resolutions this year or one of your goals this year 
was to develop the habit of resisting the urge for revenge. Notice it when it springs up. Identify it. Name it. Call it out. And then pray that God would remove it. And replace it with trust in him. Replace it with kindness. Replace it with influence in the world and in the situation. Leading to a dignity and respect that will cause others to ask about the hope that is within you. Number two, rest in the justice of God. Rest in the justice of God. I pray you never have to experience a situation that demands it. But if you do any reading in church history, you will know that there are many who have had to rest in the justice of God because there was no justice for them in this earth. I read about this a lot when I read about the Reformation, for example, and especially the abuses of the reformers under the the reign of Bloody Mary. Men led away from London Tower without giving permission to even say goodbye to their families and then burned at the stake in front of them. One woman who was burned at the stake during the Reformation goes into labor and the baby comes out of her. And the person who was watching over the fire grabbed the newborn and threw it into the flames. Where's justice for that? If you think you're going to get it in this world, you're delusional. And if that makes you bristle and you think, oh, I don't even want to think about that, then you don't even have a concept of what it's like in most of the rest of the world and most of the rest of the Christian church. That's reality. That, that, that's not extreme. That's reality, and it's happening all over the place right now. So if you think that your legislation or your political party or your campaign or your law is going is to make things right in this world, then you're going to hold on to a counterfeit justice. But if you can say, regardless of what goes down, at the end of the day, I trust and I rest in the justice and the vengeance of God, then it will change your heart and it'll give you the ability to see things through the lens of eternity. So number one, resist the urge for revenge. Number two, rest in the justice of God. And number three, resolve to do good. Resolve to do good. There are many different ways that we could explain this, but I'd like to explain it by setting up next week's message, which is going to ask the question, to what degree must we submit to human authority? At what point does disobedience equate to doing good? At which point does rebelling against authority actually conform more to the intentions of the Word of God than by submitting to it? What does it mean to to do good in an increasingly wicked world? One of the ways that Christians can be thinking about this, and you can be thinking about this as well, is that when you resolve to do good, resolve to take the Word of God and apply it to the individuals that God has given you contact with, with an effort to bring them to the point of believing the gospel. The best good you can do in whatever situation you're in is taking that gospel, the gospel of the hope of the restoration of a broken world, the gospel of the hope 
that the curse upon the world was paid for by the one who became the curse for us, the hope that all the wicked deeds that are done and known are once and for all placed on the sacrificial lamb of God and he is killed and his blood sprinkled, as it were, on the mercy seat, visible to God being that which makes right all that is wrong, a gospel that says that there is no list of good works you must do after you're saved to earn and maintain your favor and love from the Father, but rather a complete dependence on the Holy Spirit so that the radical nature of your faith is not seen in the causes that you promote, but in the gospel you live out. And in that way, you become remarkably winsome to a world that is desperately looking for someone who will just speak the truth. May that be what distinguishes us for our good and for the glory of our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for this text of Scripture and for the challenge that it's been. I know it certainly has been for me. I pray that you would make us models and examples of men and women who are able to resist the urge for vengeance, who hold back even from speaking the truth we know about somebody because it's not the right time and it's not the right way and it's not done with the right attitude. And instead, allow you to do your work in your time precisely and perfectly. Help us to be models of genuine dignity in a world that has lost all sense of it. Help us to be those who are able to show respect even for our neighbors if they are not believers. That we would be models of trust in you not taking anything into our own hands. That in all ways, we would allow your perfect wrath to be exercised so that our imperfect kindness can be used instead. And that our influence, therefore, will have eternal significance when people look at us and say, what is wrong with you? And we're able to say, it's not about what's wrong with us, it's about what's right with the gospel of our Savior. And then in grace, tell them how they too can find the bread of life, how they too can drink the water that always satisfies, how they too can be washed in the blood, as it were, of the perfect sacrifice, the perfect Savior. May that come to define us May we rejoice as you do it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.